Amen. Good evening. How are you? Amen. My name is Aaron Kajumba, and I serve here at Calvary as a high school pastor. It's actually my first time attending a YA service, so it's pretty awesome. I'm happy to be here. Happy for the opportunity to preach the Lord's word. Uh, for those who don't know me, I am married to one wife, beautiful Doreen Kajumba, um, and um, she couldn't be here because taking care of our foster sons, which would be awesome. Um, and I was actually born in Oxnard. Anyone born in Oxnard in the house? Born in Oxnard, but grew up in Uganda. Anyone grew up in Uganda in the house? Ish, there you go. <laughs> One person. Just call them out. Uh, but that's awesome. So, uh, but we didn't come to talk about who I am. We came to worship of the Lord's word. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity that um, leadership was offered for me to teach and worship, worship over the word with you. So, I would ask that as we spend time together, you open your hearts and be ready to hear from God. One of the things I usually do before I teach is invite everyone to stand up to read the scriptures, uh, really to position our hearts in a place of humility, and that's why we do it and why I ask people to do so, so that we have a high value of the word of God. So I ask you to do that this evening, to stand up as we read Hebrews 13, 1 through 8. Hebrews 13, one through eight. And it reads, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to teach and to worship over your word, my brothers and sisters in this room. We know that you've already gone before, Lord God, creating a path for your truth to penetrate where it is a heart of stone, creating a heart of flesh. You're allowing people to return to you in a heart of repentance, Lord, and ultimately causing new life in others. Bless this time, Lord God. Let your words fill my mouth and allow my brothers and sisters to have their hearts inclined to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have your seats. You may have your seats. Awesome. Hebrews 13, 1 through 8. Every single one of these verses literally could be a sermon. And trust me, because where I grew up from, I could teach forever. But we're not going to do that because we're, on, we're not on African time. We're on American time. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, and the structure of the book of Hebrews is pretty interesting because uh, we have that the, the writer kind of structures for 11 straight chapters Heavy doctrine, like solid doctrinal truths. And I think you guys have realized that, especially walking through these past, through we, this past few weeks. And then at the turn of chapter 12, there is a therefore. There's a switch. Turning from doctrinal truths, becoming more practical. And it's almost as if, well, let me say it this way. Anyone who, who understands English, which I admit is a very difficult language, we know that therefore is there for a reason, 
right? Therefore is always there for a reason. And so from chapters 1 through 11, he teaches all these doctrinal truths. And then 12 and 13, he begins to switch. And I say he because I believe the writer of this book is Paul. That's neither here nor there. But to look at Ephesians 1 through 3, same truth. We see who we are and how we are to live. The same follows in Romans 1 through 11 and then 12 through 16. Romans 12 where he switches and says, Therefore by the mercies of God I ask you, I implore you, I beg you to give yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and righteous to God for this is your reasonable way to serve God. He says it makes sense. And so based on that, I think that this is the writer, of, the writer of this book is Paul, but we're also making the point that we are looking at practical ways at this point and how to live our lives. It's almost as if the writer is saying that our doctrine should inform our passion. That our doctrine should inform our passion. That these truths to change how we look at how we live. And what happens is sometimes... When we don't have that balance, we fall into all kinds of craziness. Now give me some scriptures real quick. Proverbs 19.2 says that zeal without knowledge is not good and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. In Romans 10.1-3, Paul, talking to his Jewish brothers, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He wants them to be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. He goes, you have zeal for God. True. But it's not granted or planted or anchored in the truth of who Jesus is. He says, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. To God's righteousness. What did they miss? They missed Christ. Next verse 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So therefore, he's saying that, for you to not just have the ethic of Christian morals apart from Christ, a person who believes who Christ is also lives based on what his truth says. Our doctrine should definitely inform our passions. So the question is, how should we live in, in the light of how many people might misrepresent Christ? Because that happens. And that has happened in this year and the past year where Christians are on extremes of political sides extremes of different random decisions and not focused on Christ. Christians are to live in a way that they shut the mouths of the critics of Christianity. I'll give you a verse that speaks on that. 1 Peter 2.15 says, For it is God's will that by doing good, right, passionately living out what God has called us to, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now the biblical foolish person is a person who tries to go through life apart from Christ. And it is foolishness. It's truly foolishness. And so tonight I hope that as we go through these scriptures, that my goal is that one, if you're not living this way, you are called to repentance. What is the gospel for not calling you guys to repentance? And the second would be that if you are walking this way, you are encouraged to continue to do so. But the point is that the few bad people who live this way, who live zealous apart from the knowledge of God, they don't necessarily define or lessen the truth of our responsibility. There are people who have lived zealous. I mean, they killed Jesus in zeal because they believed they were doing things for God. That's why they killed him. That's why they killed him. That's why we have all kinds of people who are unbelievers asking, well, if God is good and all these things are good and Christians are awesome, how come you guys killed all these people in the crusades? Again, people living zealous apart from the truth that God has 
So this is very crucial for us to understand as believers in how we walk in our lives. So instead of doing that, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 1.23, that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. See, using those examples of the crusades and all those different things that happen, we know that it is impossible, impossible. You cannot do this. You cannot live a life that God calls us apart from the standards and power that he alone provides. It's not possible. You can't do it. You can't truly love your neighbor or give a cup of water to someone in need unless you have the power that's given to you by the Holy Spirit rooted in God's love for us. So therefore, this night is also a night of God calling us to maturity. Okay? We're calling us to maturity. We're walking in a way that leads us straight to who God is asking us to be as those who call and bear his name. I stole this from you guys, a culture that you guys have, uh, that Pastor Brian says, uh, that we are, Pastor Brian Williams, that God is calling us to look inward, to see and examine our lives. In Corinthians, Paul says, examine your heart, examine your life to see if you are truly in the faith. This is healthy. Look and see if you're truly in the faith. And then we're going to look out, to look out. How am I to live in light of the gospel those around me? What does that mean for me to live on mission, on purpose, to live and love like Jesus in this world that God has called us to? And finally, to look up to God, who is the author and finisher of our faith, to worship him and enjoy him forever. Now let's jump to our text this evening, Hebrews 13, verse 1. I would encourage you to take notes because you can always steal from the pastor and use this for your own Bible study. And, you know, God might do something for you, right? It's awesome. So Hebrews 13, 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. Paul is making the assumption that this love is already evident. He says, let brotherly love continue. He's saying this love exists and should continue to be amongst people. And so therefore I would say boldly that the Christian life is one that is marked by love. The Christian life is a life that's marked by love. In fact, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. So literally, we have been loved, and then we are compelled by the love of God to love other people. You're not doing anything that you do to love other people because you're being forced to. In fact, people don't even sin because they're forced to. They do it because of joy. And so for you, your, your, your palate, your tastes have been changed so that now you desire the things of God and you're compelled by love because you've been loved so well to love others. He says brotherly love. Now the word for love there is phileo, which means to have a great affection for, to have a deep affection for. And the other word is adelphos, means from the same womb. So have love of people from the same womb. The book of Hebrews is written to Christian Jews. Christian Jews. And so Paul is first addressing people who are living that way. And if you guys look at this in the Bible as you read and study on your own, this is a distinction that the writer of, of the, the different writers of the Bible will have for different people. Like this one, brothers. The word brothers is usually referred to Jews, speaking to those who are Hebrew. And then we have people who are Jewish believers who are called holy brothers or beloved brethren. That was for free. Use that as you study. It will help you very much. Trust me. 
And then believers are called beloved. So in this case, he's saying, he's speaking to his brothers. And Acts 22.1 kind of brings that point out. In Acts 22.1 through 2, he says, brothers and fathers. Now, for context, what's happening here is, again, Paul is speaking to these Hebrew people. And he wants them to understand who God is. He goes back to Jerusalem to begin to uh, worship God for one of these different festivals, shaves his head. Uh, don't ask me why. It's kind of one of the things he did to show his devotion to uh, being a Jew, a true Jew. Sh- shaves his head and goes for this, this time and begins to preach the gospel. And he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet And then he began to teach them the gospel. And what happened was these people did not like that. And they began to be stirred up. And then all the city was stirred up, verse 30, and the people ran together. And they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So what's happening here is this. There's a, a space where all these Hebrew people are coming to worship God. Now, the Roman Empire was controlling uh, Jerusalem. And so whenever they would allow them to have their festivals, they would have heavy security. Because you don't know, are these guys really worshiping or are they going to overthrow our kingdom? What's happening? And so immediately when they saw there was ruckus happening in this area, they sent forth the tribune to go out and arrest Paul. Verse 37 says, As Paul was being brought back into the barracks, literally being saved from being killed by his brothers, he said to the tribune, may I ask something of you? Do you know Greek? Which is so random. Like, what the heck? What is he trying to do? He goes, after having a back and forth with the man, expressing that he's not the guy who's an Egyptian who's trying to cause caracas in the area, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. And I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew language and began to preach to them again the gospel. See, Paul is loving his brothers. What does that mean for us? It's kind of difficult for us to love people who are within our own space, even within the Christian body, because we expect much of them. And when they fall, are like, you're more critical of them. But Paul, even in the face of death, literally, they saved him from death by arresting him. He says, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. He speaks to this guy in his native language and says, give me a second so I can go back and give my life. Potentially might be killed again by this crowd so people can understand the love of God. Do you live like that? Do you have that self-sacrificial love? Now, let's define what love actually means. I believe that love is an unselfish decision. An unselfish decision to seek someone's highest good even at the expense of your own. Love is an unselfish decision to seek someone's highest good even at the expense of your own. Do you live like that? That is self-sacrificial love. Agape love. Unconditional love. Given to our brothers. Hebrews 3.1 again. He says, therefore holy brothers. Again, Christian Jews. You share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's a love that is sacrificial, like Jesus. That's the kind of love he's talking about. Now, why is this kind of crucial for us? 
Because like I said, this is going to affirm some of your faith. See, love is evidence of salvation. It's evidence of whether or not we have a life that's truly redeemed and changed by the word of God. 1 John 5.1 says that everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So you not only show that you are saved by loving, but loving those who are in the body. He goes on to say in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This is evidence of true living faith. See, you could take this chapter, these these last two chapters, 12 and 13, and line them up to, to the Sermon on the Mount, and line them up to the book of James, and see whether or not you are truly living a life that is given to God. This is good for us to know. So we know we are secure in love with God. I would say the opposite of this love is fear. The Bible says the perfect love casts out all fear, and this fear has to do with judgment. Why do we fail to love our brothers, to love people around us? It's because we have fear. We have a mistrust of God. And so instead of trusting God with our lives, we begin to be anxious. Why do we get anxious? Because we don't have control. We want to have control of all these different situations. And because we have fear of losing control, we become selfish. James, the first pastor ever of the book of the, of the first church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, in James 4, 1 through 3, speaking to Christian Jews, reiterates this. He says, what causes quarrels and f- what causes fights amongst you? Why are you having church politics in your church? Why is that happening right now? I know many of you guys come from different spaces. But why does this happen? Why do you have those struggles amongst people who are supposed to be believers? Christians today suing fellow believers, not coming to one to another to talk things through, but instead taking things to pagan lords to make decisions. Why? He says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? What kind of a passion is at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. See, it even shapes how our pleasures are. Your pleasure should be in the love of God. But if it's not, then you begin to treat people differently because you're out for yours. You're out to get what fits you. Proverbs 30, 15 says, the leech has two daughters. Give and give. And you will live like that, like a leech. Not giving yourself to give to others, but to receive and to suck the life out of them. Because you don't have the love of God inside of you. So God initiates and sustains this love. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10, it says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is that what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, do this more and more. Do this more and more. Now, we're going to shift from looking at ourselves to a view of others, especially with this idea of love. Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, examined the Christians, and he reported back to Trajan, the emperor. And he had to admit, although he was looking for a charge on which to condemn them, he says, and his report back to this leader was, these Christians, they bound themselves by an oath not to any criminal end, but to avoid theft or robbery or adultery. 
never to break their word or repudiate or deposit when called on to refund it. He said, these Christians, they're loving everyone around them. Like we're trying to nail them for something, but we can't find anything. They're giving themselves to each other. They pay their debts. They don't drive over the speed limit. When they're trying to break up with someone, they don't just do it over a text message. Ooh, was, that a, was that a nerf that happens? Wow, loving, just being honest. Loving, think about this. Again, we're moving into practical examples of how we're supposed to love one another, to be open and honest. He goes on to say in Romans 13, 8, but let no debt remain outstanding. I like it in the King James, and I wrote the ESV. But it says, let no debt remain outstanding except a continuous debt to love one another. If you're to have debts with people, let it be a debt of continuing to love them. Like, I, I need to love you. I must love you. I must give myself to you. Fight to serve. Not to show off like, oh, man, I'm, a, I'm such a servant for God. Oh, my God. No. Like, serve because you want to give of yourself to people. So what does that mean practically? Titus 3, 2 through 7 says, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling. All right. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. See, we were once like this. This is how you were before Christ. We were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3 that we were basically dead in our sin. Chapter 2, made, made, made basically for the day of wrath. You're living like animals, living in your passions. If you want to have sex, you go do it. If you want to hit someone in the throat because they did something bad, you do it. Turn the other cheek, what the heck? Like, no. If you, you said something, you better, better be ready to square up. But Christians don't live like that. This is why Christians don't riot. Because we don't live like that. We live a life of self-sacrificial love one for another. He goes on to say that we had passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is an act of God. So what I'm trying to tell you is that if you're not living this life, you need to ask God, God, what, what's happening in me? Am I truly changed? And God, if I'm falling short, help renew me. Renew my strength. Make my heart given to you. Make my heart given to you. In the words of Jesus, love your enemies. And that's in Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Now verse 2 says, do not neglect, 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have watched the show Touched by an Angel. Touched by an Angel, yeah? For some of you guys are like, that's such an old show. It was the best. I used to watch it when I was younger. Uh, great, great show. But basically, these angels would come out and help people and do all kinds of things uh, sent by God to minister to people. And what's interesting about this, this verse is that before we touch on the angels, he says, show hospitality to strangers. Literally, love everyone. 
He goes in Galatians 6.10 that so we have opportunity to let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. And 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. He says, be active in seeking good. Be vigilant in seeking good. Chase after what God has for us. The good works set before us, before the foundations of the earth. He says this in, in, in Hebrews 13 to you again, that these angels, let's talk about these angels. This is interesting because Abraham actually had this happen to him, right? If you, go, you guys remember this in, in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 18, he hosted Jehovah. He hosted God at his house. He just saw a bunch of people, you can read it on your own, chapter 18, and they're just hanging out. They're standing by a tree, saw him far off. He was sitting at his tent. He looks up and he sees three men standing. And he goes over there and says, come over. Let me give you something to eat. And he ends up hosting the God of the universe. It's pretty amazing. So Jesus has this kind of a thing that he, he tests with us as far as if we care about strangers. In Matthew 25, 35 through 40 is a commendation where he says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. He's going to test some of us because we've seen a lot of homeless people. He says, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, did we, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as strange and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then in condemnation, just without skipping a beat, he goes, then he will say to those on his left, right in the same chapter, right in the same chapter, people have equal opportunity to express this love, to care for those who are strangers, just strangers. This is stuff we, you don't really think about. This is just basic. Strangers. People on the street. Then he says to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he continues to say the same things. He says, those people who don't do that basically have been turned away from me. And I, I turn my heart and my hand and my salvation away from them as well. It's a test. Think about it. It's a test. Do you have a heart of compassion? Now, you might say, it's hard for me to give to people who are homeless because they're going to go drink it anyway. You don't know that. Now, there must be wisdom. I agree. So what do you do in that kind of a situation? That question is usually asked of me by, by high school students. What do I do with homeless people? What if they're going to go and drink with it? See, when you get to heaven, God will never be like, you got jibbed, so you're going to hell. He won't. See, the Bible says that the poor will always be amongst us. Always. You are not going to, in all your goodness, and all your love, and all your building houses for people in Mexico, for doing all these different things, going to Africa and doing all these different things, you are not going to eliminate poverty. He says the poor will always be amongst you. So why are they amongst us? A test for you. A test for you and me. To put your heart in a place of humility. To bear evidence, to bear fruits of the faith, of the spirit of God. To test if you've been really or truly redeemed by his spirit. That's what it is. 
They'll never be gone. They'll always be there. They'll always be there. So I say give. I say give. You might say, okay, I'll, I'll give food instead. Give. Do it. But trust that God is a good judge. There's a man who says, a pastor, he says, when I give them the money, I say, may God bless you if you're going to use this money. May it increase. May you have all the things you need by using this money to get whatever you really, really need for your body and for your health. And then he goes on to say, but if you use this money to do something evil, may you be cursed. May you have nothing ever more in your life. May you be broken and die. That's kind of scary, right? Now, I'm not saying go do that, all right? You're like, whoa, that was deep. Where did that go? Is this African Jesus? What's going on? Like, the, 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 point is, the point is that you must just give. Just give. Trust God as a good judge. Because, again, he will not say, man, you got jibbed for being honest and for loving and, to, and for giving yourself sacrificially. See, the Bible says that God in John 3, 16, that basically God gave his son the greatest gift that God could ever give was himself, and he did in Jesus. And yet some people still say no. They say no to him. They reject that love. They spit in the face of the Father. And some of you are here in this room enjoying the joy of the beloved. You enjoy coming here because there's good vibes. What does that mean? Amongst believers, there is joy. The Bible says that. There's joy amongst the beloved. You rejoice and sing and laugh and people hug you, invite you after to go to In-N-Out to get a number two or whatever you guys like to get specifically, protein style, whatever, all those things. They love you. They truly do. But there's much more than just leeching off the ethics of Christian life. You must have and embrace Christ himself. We're not here to teach moralism. We're here to teach Christ crucified and the Christ who resurrected to give us life. So we can live in response to that life, to live in love like Jesus in our communities. Verse 3 says, calling us to have a heart of compassion. Remember those who are in prison as though, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. The body. Now, there's a gentleman, we're going to throw up a picture of him. And uh, at one of their, our services here at Calvary, right here in the middle, some of our pastors went to go and visit him. And he told the story of how while he was in prison, um, he was there with other Christian brothers. And they decided to clean the toilets because no one else wanted to clean the toilets. And while they were cleaning the toilets, that's where they could commune as believers to sing and to share and encourage one another. And the, 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 the prison guards wouldn't beat them or stress them out. Because they were in prison for being Christian because they were cleaning the toilets. That's, that's powerful. But have you ever had compassion for people like this? Does it, when you hear about people who are in prison for the, the cause of Christ, does that give you a heart to be inclined to even pray about those? This may be a practical example for you to start doing that. That, Lord, there are people who we don't even know who are living lives for Christ on the mission field or just normally. Trusting and living in love like Jesus and being thrown in prison and stressed out for it. Is your heart like that? Having a heart for, for compassion for them. You can't say, they're over there and I have my own problems. You can't say that. Again, it's an evidence of your salvation. He goes, we are called basically to bear each other's burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. 
Bear each other's burdens. Have grace. Have love one for another, but also pray for one another as if you're also with them. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Basically he's saying, be like Jesus. (laughs) Be like Jesus. Like Jesus knows everything. And yet he goes, dude, I'm I'm, I'm still going to love you. Some of you guys, it's difficult because, you know, no, I know that person's going to mess up. He's going to do all those different things. But you're called to love. You're not called to figure out the end product, what's going to happen with it. You're, you're just called to sow the seed, water the plant. And maybe someone else will, will reap that harvest. But be obedient to give yourselves to God. Now, verse 4, Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage, so some of you, finally, the marriage verse. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Why is this such a big deal? Because love perverted turns into lust. It is possible to defile the marriage bed. You can be married and not live self-sacrificially within your marriage, forcing your husband and your wife to do things that they do not want to do, causing them to dissent, regret, even hate you. It's true. Not even just about just sex. There's many other ways to do that. So he goes, in that space, your love cannot turn to lust. There must be a love that is based against on self-sacrifice. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, for those who are single, before you get to that place, because some of you guys are not married, in 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Even others... Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So what's a practical example for us? For those of you who are single, who want to live a life that is pure before God, don't pray and try to give a dissertation about how God's love is good. And girl, I know you're trying to do this. Or dude, I know your hand is super heavy on my neck or my shoulder. It sounds a little weird. Shoulder, there you go. Uh, it's going to get weird. Uh, but, but dude... Uh, no, uh, run, <laughs> like just run. This is not one where he's like, dude, pray fast, figure it out. Like you guys like set boundaries and then chill on it and then like cross the boundaries next week and they're like, you know, we're back again, high fives. Now we're doing hand, hug, hand hugs, not full hugs because hugs are now too much. Lead us into doing other things. Now we're moving from this way to this way. Like, no, like you need to like flee. And so Joseph runs like, and there's all kinds of people who, who did not run and ended up being messed up. Samson. Think about the strength of Samson, a judge of Israel, taken out by that. He should have run, but instead he fell and walked and stepped into that space. Now, I'll say you have a responsibility to yourself because he says it's a sin against your body. Okay? You have a responsibility to yourself to be sexually pure. And in the church, there are actually people who have very many false teachings on sex and false teachings on marriage. And this is not uncommon. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, he goes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know 
the truth. He goes, man, you guys think you're more holy than others because you're just abstaining? Dude, no. Get married. Give yourself to God. And enjoy within the boundaries of marriage, within the safety of marriage. Enjoy that with one another. But you don't become better because you're removing yourself from that space. And so they'll teach, it's better for you to be single forever. Just don't do it. There's a bunch of people who live like that in random cults, even throughout our states. Again, he says, let it be held in honor and in the bed undefiled. Now, Ephesians 5.25 is interesting because we see that God is honoring marriage in many different ways. Uh, he honors marriage, one, by blessing it in Genesis. And then he honors marriage after that by, like Jesus, by attending a wedding in Cana. And then the Holy Spirit also honors this marriage by giving us an example, Ephesians 5.25 by giving us an, an image of Christ and the church. He goes, that you should love your wife as Christ loves the church, giving himself for her. Now, I would ask yourself, even right now, do you love even your own family that way? Would you give yourself for your family? Would you truly say, hey, you're, I, I'd switch my life with you so you could live. Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans, pleading to, to his brothers, he says, I wish that I could switch my point of salvation so the whole nation of Israel could be saved. He goes, I'd rather go to hell. He's fully aware of this. He knows what he's speaking, what he's teaching. He goes, I'd rather be damned forever, separated from God, forever in the presence of his wrath, than have all my brothers not receive the fullness of who God is. That's deep stuff. He's not just switching his life on earth. He's saying, my very salvation. Do you have that kind of love for others and for people who you would end up marrying? See, now I guess the question is, what's the purpose of marriage? Well, easy. Cool. That's awesome. One, Genesis 1 through 28, 128 says we're supposed to have children, right? Awesome. Cool stuff. Children, yay. We hopped at the earth. Next one, prevention of immorality. Meaning, if you're struggling with this and you're like, dude, we're trying to do this and yet boundaries and it's struggling, it's hard, it's difficult. Dude, get married. Get married. It's not bad. He says, get married. Now, that shouldn't be the only reason why you get married so we can have sex. Yay, let's do it. No, no. You, you must be able to be in a place where you have people speaking to your life, you're in a healthy community, Want, uh, talking about where you guys are, your compatibility, all those different things, and then do that. And the last one is to eliminate solitude. It is not good for man to be a, alone. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So you're meant to be one with another. So how do you choose someone to get married to? Within this context of making sure our marriage bed is awesome and it's cool, you must have someone who has the right thinking, the right order to involve and to inform his passions. How do you choose someone to marry? Well, one, you choose someone who's not related to you. <laughs> Real talk. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Leviticus 18 says that. So one, 
don't, don't do that. Like, does not make any sense. Not good. It's not healthy. I'm not going to get into all that science, but there you go. It's in the Bible. I'm telling you, the Bible has everything pertaining to life and godliness. So it says life, general, normal, day-to-day life, and godliness, how to be like Christ. Next one. Someone who is not a Christian. Don't marry someone who is not a Christian. It's not going to work. You will be pulling your hair out. Now, there's places in Scripture where... Um, in First Peter or Second Peter, uh, where people, they got married and they, they were in that, that relationship already and they got saved. These wives got married and or, or they got saved as they were already married. And so he tells them, he goes, man, you, you just got to live self-sacrificially. That hopefully in the way you live before these people, before these men, that they may be given to God. So in every essence, he's saying, die to yourself and sacrifice and ask that God would change the hearts of people. And he will. He will. People who did that are Samson, Solomon, and Ahaz. They married people who were not believers and ended up in all kinds of trouble. Samson and Delilah. Solomon had many. We can't even begin to name all these different people. But for a man who was the wisest man ever, that was pretty dumb. He writes a whole book of Ecclesiastes talking about how he made mistakes. Marry someone in the will of God. What does that mean? Okay, now the positive things. Marry someone in the will of God. Uh, Proverbs 22.1, talking about someone who has a good reputation. And I believe it says that a, a good name is better than gold. Look for someone who is in their community. Again, are they part of YA? Are they in a small group? Do they love their mom? Do they buy their uncles? Like, Food, I don't know, just stuff, reputation. Like, do they have a good reputation? And then the other, the appearance, Isaiah 3, 9. Do they have a proud look? Are they stuck up? I don't, want, I don't think you guys would want that. I won't want that. Let's move on. We're not talking about the model look like when they pose in fixtures. Like, that's cool, like whatever, but normally. Speech, do they have good speech? The Bible says, out of the abundance of their heart, the mouth speaks. What is their speech? What are they talking about? Do they honor God in that? And then their clothing in 1 Timothy 2.9. Are they modest? The modesty will speak like humongous things about how they spend their money, about how they view themselves amongst people. Do they carry themselves in honor? And then companions. Psalms 1.1. Talking about how a person is known by their company. Who are these people around them? So this is going to be a difficult thing for many of us. It's going to be, it's going to be super hard. Why? Because we want to sin. We're struggling. We're, we want to, I, you, I want to touch it. Like you, that's where you live. You live in that space where you are struggling with your sin. See, the difference between you and an unbeliever is that you have this, this, this thing called the Holy Spirit that puts a boundary on your heart and calls you back. In Titus, the Bible says that the light of God has, has been shown to all of us, teaching us to say no to unrighteousness. And so you have this boundary of the Holy Spirit helping you live a life that is holy. In 1 Corinthians 9.26, Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. Some of you are running aimlessly. I love you, Jesus. I'll just try to live for you. Like, that's how you live. You're not, like, beating your body like Paul says. He goes, I am not shadow boxing." I'm intentional with my life. Now, when I met my wife the first time, I said, hey, I took her on a date. 
paid for the movie. After the movie, he has some ice cream. And I said, I don't normally do this. He goes, what do you mean? I, I don't normally go out with ladies one-on-one. And I didn't. See, I, before then, I was being intentional with how I lived. I said, I don't want to be with a lady one-on-one. What if people say I'm doing this, doing all these different things? So I said, I'm just not going to do that. And she goes, what do you mean? Like, I'm a lady, you're a guy, what's going on over here? Like, and I said, I want to get to know you with the purpose of marrying you. And if it doesn't work out, then I believe we would have the confidence and the maturity to continue to be friends because I'm being honest with you. And praise God, I'm married. Here we are. March 23rd will be our th- third anniversary. But there must be an intentionality with how you walk out your life. You must beat your body into submission because it doesn't want to do that. You must literally give yourself self-sacrificially. Verse 5 through 6. Well, some of you might be difficult, but hey, it says this. I would encourage you one. Do not fear. Do not let this fear overwhelm you. The fear of being alone or fear of uh, not having all these different things. But instead, hold on to the future hope that God has for you. Now, verses 5 through 6 in Hebrews says this. Free your life. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, for context, Paul is writing to people who are losing everything. Everything's being taken away from them. Because they've chosen to live for God, what's happening is that their very own brothers are rejecting them. See, we read where Paul was being killed, almost being killed by his own brothers. Families are being rejected. Land is being taken away from them. And now they also have the Roman Empire taking over their kingdom. So they're losing everything. Friend, family, land, relationships. That person you were dating before, you're a Christian now, turncoat. We don't love you no more. It's not going to work out. That's what's happening to them. They're losing everything. And in Hebrews 10, 33, 34, he says this, and you guys read this weeks before. He said, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. With joy. How are you able to enjoy what God is doing to you? Like God is allowing to happen in your life. How are you able to, with joy, hold on to what God has for you? Your eyes are fixed on the hope that God has for you. The future hope of his possession. It says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I'll ask you a question. Do you love money? Do you love money? Do you love money? Do you love money? Do I love money? Do you love money? Well, here's a test. You're always seeking more money. You gotta have more money. It's a true sign that you must have money. Or you don't value money. Meaning you're always like this. Millions upon millions upon millions. So you're a swag on. Millions on millions. You don't value money, so you spend anyhow. Or you're a person who hoards money. You don't give it away. It's a test of whether or not money is your God. See, the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9, he says... But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those, the warning then, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. He's not saying it's bad, but he's saying there is more temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, life is more than just stuff. If your heart and your life is planted in these first 11 chapters of this truth, you realize your life is more than just stuff. It's more than just the the black denim jacket that happens to be Levi and you like the little red tag or whatever. There are people who always keep their tags on their stuff. I'm not saying it's, you know, it's whatever. It's kind of weird, personally, right? Like they will not, you buy something and you leave it in the bag and always have it on, in the bag hanging on your, your, like your rack. Life is more than that, that thing. He wants you to enjoy it forever. Now, we know that the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, and it's more about having a desire for that and not a desire for God. I'm going to jump down to this verse in verse uh, in Job 31:24. That instead of doing that, like Job, who was a pretty wealthy guy in the Bible, he's asking us to set our, our focus, to set our heart on God. He says, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because of my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found too much, this also would be my iniquity if I be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Saying, if I love money more than God and I showed in the way I live, I'm making God a liar. I'm truly saying that, God, you are not enough for me, and I need all these things and this money to fulfill my needs. Does money do that for you? Think about that. When you can't pay the rent, do you pray or do you freak out? Do you praise or do you worship? Like, do you praise and worship? Praise, worship, different hands, like this guy. You do the, the jumping jack or the, that guy. Like, what, do you, what happens to you? Or do you just do this, face palm and just worry? What do you do when that happens? Is this money your God? Or are you trusting the God who has all Things. See, God is the one who gives the ability to give wealth. That's in Genesis 15.1. And if he, he can give wealth to us, then he can take care of all of our needs. Truly. But do you view God as God? That's a question. Because if you don't view God or have a high view of God, then you're going to struggle forever. You not step into the promises or rest. In Hebrews, again, it says that some of these Israelites failed to enter into the rest of God because they failed to trust him. They failed to trust him. They never entered the promised land because their hearts were not fixed on God. So how do you overcome that love of money? You trust God who gives according to you. Now, what does that mean? So I have two things in my pocket. I have a wallet and AirPods. Now, if I give from my riches, it means I'm giving you one of my things. So I trust you so I can give you my wallet, Right? I'm giving from my riches, my riches something to you. But according to would mean that because I'm Aaron Kajumba, you could expect me to give you $10. Because I'm balling like that, right? If it was Pastor Brian, you'd be like, Pastor Brian's going to donate to my, my wedding fund? All right, sweet. I'm trying to live holy, and he's going to give to my wedding fund. Pastor Brian, $200. Wow, amazing. And as you continue to go escalate and see whoever is bigger you begin to realize that God gives according to his riches and glory. He owns it all. All the cattle of a thousand hills are his. 
So we can trust that he will give us all things. He won't withhold anything from his people, not even his secrets. He gives us everything. He withholds nothing from us. You have the confidence that God knows what we need. In Luke 12, 30, he says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He knows. He knows. One of the comforts we have as believers is that God knows and understands where our hearts are. And the last one, we must trust that and look at the, the supremacy of God. Because the Bible says in 1 Samuel 2, 7, that God makes the poor and the rich. He makes both of those people. Set your mind on heavenly things. Verse 7, for leaders, he goes, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is huge for every believer, not just Christians. Why? Because how you live is a living Bible and testament to people. What happens in the book of Malachi is that the priests began to live lives that were contrary to the gospel, allowing these people to bring sacrifices, to live this practical way before God, bringing lame animals, animals that had broken bones and old and, and eyes that were popped out of their sockets so they could just have more and more for their selfishness. And then God condemns them and speaks against them. See, if, if you're not living a life of openness before God and for others, people won't sacrifice or even worship well. Because they're looking at you as an example. It's huge. The last one in verse 8 is this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God ultimately is calling us to live for his glory. Ultimately, so live, to live a life for his glory he goes in 1321, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that was, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is calling us to look up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. The question you must ask yourself, what kind of sacrifice is worthy of God? I, I kind of quoted it earlier, Romans 12, 1, that therefore... If God is God, truly God, and he's given us great mercy, then it makes sense. It makes sense to give your life as a living sacrifice. It makes sense to honor him. If he truly has all things and commands all things and holds all things by the power of his word, it makes sense to honor him. You may ask yourself, what does that look like practically? Hebrews 12, 2 says this, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith. It's not just laying aside sin. See, you kind of grew up looking at life, maybe as a believer, seeing that, and sometimes even from the outside looking in, say that the Christian life is a life of saying, no, you can't. But what about the things that are just weighing you down? It's not always sin. What are the things that are just not helping you run? The question is, does this help you run? Does having a boyfriend right now help you run well? Does having a girlfriend right now help you run well? Does you stressing out help you run well? Do these things help you run a life towards God? I will leave you this verse in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. It says, 
But now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I would ask that as you worship over these next few minutes, that you would consider, Lord, where am I with you? Am I running well? And if I'm not running well, Lord, what are these things that are sin and they're, some things are just weights to let go that I may be able to truly live a life in freedom with you, that I don't show that love of money is more than who you are, that I want to honor people in relationships, that I have compassion for those who have been locked up. I have compassion for my brothers. I have compassion for people who are not my brothers. That God, you're helping me live a life on mission, on purpose. That your truths, a life of self-sacrificial love, truly inform the way that I live. Lord, I thank you for this time. Just working through these scriptures, Lord God, and worshiping them over, over them with my brothers and sisters, talking about what it means to live for you, to live a life empowered by you. I ask, Father, that you begin to, even now, begin to reveal to my brothers and sisters what it means to do so. But even more, Lord, give them the strength to trust you, to trust you as a God who will equip them for every good work.